I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi, um, it's on page number 906 if you're using a Red Pew Bible in front of you, and feel free to use those. Um, and also, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of our Pew Bibles as a gift to you this morning. We'd be happy for you to have that. Uh, we have a supplier through the Gideons who provide those to us, and there is uh, definitely uh, open invitation to use those and also to pass them to those who you know that could use them. Uh, Malachi chapter 1. Uh, if you've been with us over the last month in July, we have been looking through the book of Matthew chapters 8 and 9. Um, I like to, at times, take a break from the main uh, preaching series. I, I go through uh, a book of the Bible gradually, paragraph by paragraph, and sometimes I like to take a little bit of a break and go to the Old Testament to, to focus on an area that may be a little bit less, less read, a little bit less known. And so we're looking at the last book of the Old Testament, which took place approximately 400 years before Christ. And there are different events that were relevant to that time period, and yet there's still a high level of relevance for us today. Uh, there are topics that are addressed in this book that uh, while we are in Christ, these have specific application that transcends uh, time and location, and so there's value here for us, the listener, and so I invite you to turn there, Malachi 1, 1 through 5. And before we read our text this morning, I wonder if you recall that game as children when you were particularly infatuated that you might have played with daisies. He loves me or she loves me not. It's actually an old game. It has a French origin, apparently. Uh, I did a little research on it this, this, uh, this week. And uh, apparently in the original version, uh, you could actually pluck a petal and you, you moved actually with degrees of intensity of one's love. In fact, in the French version, it's, uh, they love me a little, they love me a lot, they love me passionately, and not at all. And so uh, a little bit of a variety there. But of course, this is a game of fantasy, isn't it? It's a game of fantasy. You can't possibly predict you possibly can't predict future relationship based upon this little flower game. Um, it, you might be surprised, though, that we, we can play this game when we think about God. We actually can think about God's love for us and play this game of he loves me or he loves me not. And it's been played for centuries. Let me just kind of remind you of how this occurred in Israel's history. God led his people out of Egypt. He loves me. Pharaoh traps army, Pharaoh's army traps Israel at this Red Sea. He loves me not. The waters of the Red Sea part. He loves me. There's nothing to eat in the wilderness, Lord. He loves me not. He supplies manna. Yes, he loves me. Affirmation is a very powerful indicator of being loved, but it is utterly ineffective to predict future relationship. You can't truly predict what will occur in the future 
by affirmation alone. And today, you know, we can feel very secure about a relationship that we have. We, we, we may today, you know, feel very secure in our relationship with her, but tomorrow she may not send any texts back to me. But we do this in all of our ups and downs of life. But you know, we also do this when people point out areas of needed improvement in our own lives. We tend to think, oh, he loves me not, or she loves me not. And Malachi's message to Israel actually is written in a style that goes back and forth, making a claim that God loves his people, and then there's this objection that maybe, does he really love us? And then there's affirmation of truth, but there's also instruction weaved into it. And so you need to know this going into the reading. I'm going to read the first five verses and see if you can see this pattern because it shows up throughout the book. So let's look at um, verse 1. The introductory first verse is setting up the kind of literature we're looking at. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, said the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Well, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, Edom, by the way, is a nickname for Esau, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. And the Lord of hosts says, well, they may, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you, Israel, will say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So you see a thesis. There's this thesis that the Lord loves Israel. There's an antithesis. Well, how have you loved me? And then there are a series of arguments as to why the proposal that God loves them is true. And at the end, there's an assertion of truth. While at the moment, it may not appear that I love you, but you are going to know, you are going to be able to say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. And I believe in this text, there's real encouragement for believers today. We may feel like that's four, 400 years, 2,500 years ago. How does this relate to me? But because we are creatures in Christ, we inherit the promises of all that God has been doing. And I believe that because of God's loyal love to you in Christ, you too will say, great is the Lord. Our text this morning is intended to be an encouraging text an encouraging sermon, but we also have to recognize that God's directive word is an indication of his love for you. Sometimes we don't hear direction as symbols of love. And so we're going to look at verse 1, and I want to explain some of the word choice here. 
to help us to see that God's directive word, God spoke to Israel through a servant called Malachi, directive word, indication that he loved them, committed to them. And the first item that we need to recognize is that God's word has weight. It is weight. Verse 1, the very first word says the oracle. The oracle. Now it's not referring to a computer business. It's actually uh, a technical word for prophetic utterance. Uh, it also, in the original language, has the idea of burden, and I believe the King James uses that word burden, so they would say the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And as I said, most new translations will use the word oracle instead of burden, and it's not wrong to do that. Uh, words have different shades of meaning based on context, and I believe the word burden is probably a little more helpful, though, than oracle because it's colorful. The Hebrew word talks about a weight of receiving something directly from the Lord. It's weighty. It's that the, the Hebrew prophets, when, when the word came, they weren't looking for it. It came not because they were pleading for it. It came from God directly, and it was so heavy, and it was so important, they couldn't forget it. Like a, like a, uh, uh, a soda can that's shaken up, like they will burst if they can't get this message out. It was a burden to them because it was so weighty. And often the message was also a burden because they knew that if they communicated that message, people weren't going to like it. And it was weighty. It was a burden. Now, I contrast this with maybe you know some Greek mythology. Um, you might have heard of the Oracle of Delphi. The Oracle of Delphi was a, f a female prophetess who would fly into wild ecstasy and utter words on behalf of Apollo. And it would occur after an elaborate purification ceremony like getting herself ramped up for this, and the use of narcotics by, by um, yeah, some narcotics to alter the mind were used. And in that context, they were very susceptible to demonic influence. They would fly into a fit. And this contrasts dramatically with the kind of message that the Hebrew prophets would receive from the Lord. It was not manufactured, and it was not demonic influence. It came from God himself and Malachi, which means literally my messenger, doesn't bring a cipher to, like, you can't figure this out. Like, it's a very clear message because it's weighty. It's weighty. Second, God's word has purpose. And this is why it's an indication of his love for you. It is purpose. Now, which Israel is it directed to? You notice it says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. What Israel is this referring to? Is it referring to the Israel that is like 400 years before Christ? 
Is this also relating to an Israel that lived after this time period? Is it a timeless communication? Paul, in Romans chapter 9, said, Not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel. That's interesting. Paul recognized that there was a distinction between an ethnic people called Israel and a true Israel in which they respond to God who initiates relationship with them. So in other words, there was a true Israel and a false kind of Israel. False Israel did not believe in the covenantal promises, but they were still beneficiaries because they were born from the line of Abraham. They were beneficiaries of God's long-suffering love for them. And I would like to say that in a similar way, God has a very long-suffering love for the world. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief. In other words, the message that was presented by Malachi was to Israel which was a mixed group of people. Some were living in faith to the covenant that God had made to them through Abraham and through Moses. They were living as true Israelites ought to live. But yet they were all still ethnically Israelites, Jewish people. And I believe that the purpose of his message was to awaken false Israelites to become true Israelites, embracing the covenant, embracing the promises, and living out faith with their God. Now, there is a parallel here for us as Christians. If you are born again by the Holy Spirit, you're brought into a new covenant by Jesus' blood. We don't do all the ceremonies of the Old Testament. But nonetheless, we are grafted into the grand congregation, the church. We are grafted in as a type of the true Israel. And so there's rich application for us as we look at this text. True Christians are part of a timeless community of faith without boundaries. And membership in your local congregation as a baptized Christian, is the way you express your connection with God's people throughout time. So God's word, whether it's in the Old or the New Testament, intends to encourage us to respond to the new covenant promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. When we unite in our faith with obedience, so to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, to love our Heavenly Father and to love our neighbor as ourselves, we are looking at Him and believing in Him and living out the new covenant with Him. We're looking forward to our coming King in which He will descend and He will rule and reign upon the earth. 
So God intends the purpose, a little bit long in this point, but it's really important. God intends to change us by the faithful preaching and the hearing of his word. So there is weightiness, there is purpose, but there is a third aspect that communicates that we, when we hear the word and we is giving us direction, it's an indication of his love for us, and that is that God's word is ultimately covenantal. So, there's this little phrase right at the beginning. I have loved you, says the Lord. That very first line is an expression of God's covenanting love for his chosen people. I love you, I have loved you, is a shorthand declaration of God's historic marriage oath to Israel. You know, when a man and a woman swear an oath of covenant at the marriage altar, what are they doing? They're making promises to one another to create a, an exclusive, a safe, and also an intimate union with one another. They become one flesh. But this is a picture, a model off of what God does for Israel, and also we say that it is a picture of the church today. But in the Old Testament, many times throughout the Old Testament law, there was these repetitions of this idea that, that the Lord loved his people. In particular, Deuteronomy 10, 15 says, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after you, you above all peoples, as you are this day. The Lord set his heart in love upon you. You know, there are plenty of ups and downs in a marriage. But a marriage that is exclusive, that is safe, that is intimate, is a place that causes couples to flourish in a fallen world. It's a haven. It's a place of security. And our society needs greater instruction on marriage as a necessary institution of preservation of life in this world. Words of affirmation, I began our sermon talking about words of affirmation, he loves me, he loves me not. It's not usually a good predictor of the future of one's relationship with another. In the same way, a covenant, a vow at the altar is also potentially ineffective. Rather, covenant behavior is, protect, it is predictive of what the future of your relationship will be. Let me say it again. Covenant behavior is predictive. It is a predictive measure of true love. If your spouse is actively guarding your marriage reserving intimacy for you and is encouraging you to flourish above other people, then that allows both man and woman to flourish. And it also is a symbol of a secure place of relationship. And in the same way, God's word is covenantal. 
His promises have weight. They have purpose. And it's wrapped up in covenant predictability. You know, sometimes we may be tempted to view God as we view ourselves. We're not great covenant keepers. And so when we go astray, sometimes we, we forget, though, that God is not like us. He always keeps covenant with his people. We might be tempted, as I said, to view God as ourselves, but God is not a fallible covenant keeper. He always keeps his word. God is faithful to his vows to us. And you know what? He seeks to draw us back when we go astray. We forget that those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. It's hard for us to imagine that discipline would be a way of loving. That speaking directionally towards us about, hey, you're off the path. Let's get you back on the path. That that could be a loving thing. But it's because we are not like God who keeps covenant with us. He's doing it for our best interest. He actually wants us to find flourishing and to find his faithfulness, what we desperately need. So when God gives his directive word to realign the orientation of our hearts, he's doing so because he loves us. And I think it's important for me to pause here for a moment and bring application to parents. When you give correction to your children, do so in the context of reminder of your covenant love to them. If they stubbornly refuse to heed your word, take the time to correct. Bring them back into line. But do it in a context where you are communicating that you you are committed to them regardless of what they do. There is at times where we need to catch attention of our children. And this will go a long way to help them to respect your word and ultimately God's word. We learn how to follow God's word by learning how to follow our parents' word. And they just as well need to know that God loves them. And we need to know that God loves us. And one of the ways that God demonstrates his love towards us is in his correction and his disciplining of us. We have an inverted world, an inverted world that, that, that doesn't fully grasp some of these simple basic truths but yet they're all modeled upon God's own self-revelation to us. Jeremiah 31.3, a verse we probably all know and love and would quote immediately, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. This, this is prior. As parents, we're prior to those children who are born and we covenant with them when they are born to raise them, to love them, to direct them. Just as we have a Heavenly Father who does the same for us. 
And it is truly, I believe, because of God's loyal love to us, we also will, we will say as well with Israel, great is the Lord. We have a great Lord. But Israel says, well, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Well, in the remainder of the verses through verse 5, what we have is a demonstration of God's generosity towards us, and it's evident, it's evident, evidence of his love for us. So verse 2, um, I left off in verse 2 where it says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And this point begins with this next phrase. Uh, but you say, how have you loved us? And God responds, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, uh, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. A remarkable, it almost feels like wrong, actually. How is this a demonstration that God loves Jacob or even that God would love us? Well, it all starts before we were even born. As it says, you know, here uh, in verse, it all started long before those two twin boys were even born, before either one could even do anything sinful. God revealed to their parents that he had an intention to bless the younger instead of the older. I don't know why, but I do know that in reflection, Paul in Romans chapter 9 reflects upon this, this exact verse in Malachi and recognizes rightly that God has absolute freedom to be merciful upon whom he will have mercy. And we must be very careful not to downplay how early this decision to have mercy is. This mercy is prior to birth prior to our free will, prior to our own sin. That's hard to process. Very hard to process. I can't figure that out. But these two boys, Jacob and Esau, have a storied history of conflict. They have deceit. They have hatred. And neither boy is a stellar picture of what I would say is a good boy. Jacob attempts to steal his brother's blessing and his birthright. Esau tries to murder his brother. Jacob flees. Jacob's mean, after all, means deceiver. He leaves Canaan. He goes to be with his uncle Laban, who is like the deceiver of deceivers. Well, Jacob returns home after many years, and he's humbled. It's through many dangerous toils and snares that he comes home. And then he comes home. He's ready to be true to God. And Jacob's name is changed to Israel, which means prince with God. Jacob's character changes and he is no longer living out that deceit character. He's changed. Esau, on the other hand, had what I would call a moral reformation 
But as far as we can tell, it really was more the result of regret rather than of true faith. He's still proud. And we know this because God does not change his name as he had changed Jacob's name. And so the ancient prophecy is going to stand. Esau has another name too. I, I kind of alluded to this, the name Edom. But this is not a name given to him by God. This is a name given to him by those who know him. And his character reflects in this direction. Well, what does Edom mean? It means red. And I would like to say that it's very closely kind of how we think of Redbeard the pirate. He's a bloody man. Esau's descendants were a bunch of wild animals, lawless people, like their father. Jacob and Esau serve really as illustrations of conversion and non-conversion. What is a true and what is a not true Christian? Maybe we would say a Christian in name only. When a person is born again, they begin to have character change. The Holy Spirit comes into them and changes them over time. A true Christian is someone who had been known, had been known as a deceiver. They had been known as a profane person. They had been known as immoral. But when you are born again by the Holy Spirit... Your sin and their shame is lifted. Now you're liberated to be a new creature, a new person. Now, we don't have privileges of access into the mind of God. We don't, we don't know his sovereign will or his sovereign way in the hearts and minds of people. We just don't have that access. But we can only observe what the Holy Spirit is doing like the wind in the leaves. Jesus talked about that in John 3. We, we see the effects of the work of the Spirit, and you know that God is moving in people's hearts as they're changing. Even in ourselves, it's only gradually that we discover, you know, maybe it's been a couple years, and we look back and we realize, wow, God is working in my heart. I'm being changed. Hallelujah. It's His work and not my own. So when you are born again, so you, there's, 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 what ha there's this before being born again, there's this when you are born again, verse 2, the last section of verse 2, the last phrase where God says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And that phrase, I have loved Jacob and Esau I have hated, can feel very, very heavy. Very heavy. So sometimes to make it feel less heavy, we sometimes will interpret these in the sense of less or more. But I don't think that you can do that here. Because God's love is not less or more. It's focused. And these words, actually, I believe, are more in line with the sense of inclusion or exclusion in a final sense. And that's a really important distinction, in a final sense. 
because God is long-suffering, and he does want people to respond. But in a final sense, there is a point when those who are not born again are excluded from eternal life. There is an, a time period, and when we transfer from death into the next world, that's where exclusion finally occurs. And I say this because whether we like to hear this truth or not, we need to hear it. When God brings final judgment for sin and sinners, it will be with the full expression of hatred for sin. It will be just. It won't be. It will be appropriate because our sin against God is eternally inappropriate. Psalm 1, excuse me, Psalm 11 Verse 4 through 7, yes, it's a poetic section, but it's intended to teach us something about what happens around. We don't see what God is doing. God is described as sitting on a throne room in a heaven, in his eyes seeing the hearts and the acts of mankind. And I'll just quote this, these two verses. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. That's pretty heavy. It's pretty strong. And we may not enjoy hearing those things, but this is the end of the road of, of not responding to the truth of Jesus Christ. I mean, last, last Sunday, if you were with us, we were in Matthew, we were talking about the miracles, like 10 solid miracles that were performed. We had inclusive miracles, right? We had lepers being cleansed, we had Gentiles being ministered to, access to God, we had women serving, and the glory of the new covenant in Jesus Christ is its inclusivity. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But we also saw exclusivity. The proud rejected Jesus. See, Jesus had the absolute authority to heal, but he was also filled with authority to forgive sins. Everyone could see it. Everyone could see it except for those who doubled down and gaslit and said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. See, when you are born again, you're included in God's family. You're part of the bride of Christ. You're no longer excluded. You don't, you're not sitting out there. You're included in. You are the object of God's love. God's love is sovereign. It is unconditional. But God's love is not more or less. Rather, his love emanates mercy according to his sovereign will. Now, there is a sense, a general sense, in which God does love the world. He does love the world. 
I don't want to minimize that at all. Or have anyone walk away thinking that God doesn't care for the world. Not at all. Not at all. He died so that the world might believe and not perish, John 3.16 says. And it would be wonderful if the whole world would respond to that gospel offer. It would be wonderful. But the truth of the matter is there will be some who harden their hearts like Esau. In fact, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, there will be many who do not enter in. Wide is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate, and few there are that find it. What happens when, when, when you harden your heart like Esau? Well, we are to learn what it means to be the object of God's love in contrast to how Esau inherited judgment. God had decreed judgment upon Esau's descendants. And as a nation, it's like they can't seem to get their act together no matter how hard they try. They don't flourish. Uh, it says here they, they, they're, they're, they're in the hill country in verse 3. I laid waste his hill country. In, in the ancient world, hill country was the best country for defense. Of like, you put your citadel on top of the hill. It was a place which you could protect. Well, they can build it, but it will get torn down. It's laid waste. Jackals, they're like, they're wild dogs, and they're like everywhere. They're running through the streets. It's not a, sounds dystopian to me. They try to rebuild after a warring nation sweeps through and levels them. Why is this the case? Because the Lord is bringing this about because of the hardness of Esau's heart. I think it's very important for us to recognize that a father can set up a future generation for failure. And as a people, Eden couldn't get onto first base because they had refused to turn from sin. Now, the New Testament recognizes that Esau hardened his heart. He was filled with regrets, and Hebrews chapter 12 talks about this, but yet he pursued immorality and profane living, seeking happiness. He, he, that's where he thought he was going to find it rather than finding it in relationship with God. And Israel, as an, a witness and an observer of the outcome of this, ought to have been looking and saying, wow. This is what happens when people turn away from the living God. Maybe we ought not to turn away from the living God. Israel had learned the hard way. They were not acting as true Israel. They were false Israel, worshiping the gods of the culture around them in a way that led to ruin and distress. So you have... Babylon coming out from the east, mowing down nations. Israel, because of their iniquity, were also mowed down. Wait a sec, what about, where's the hopefulness though? Okay. And here it is in verse 5. If you are born again, Malachi 
refers to this element of rebuilding because he's speaking to a generation that had been mowed down by Babylon, but now they're coming back like new seeds being planted in the land again. They come to a land that it's like scorched earth. Like this is hard to rebuild this land. But here's the difference. Because God had made a marriage vow with them, they had every right to expect that God would make them flourish. The rains of blessing would come down upon them. If they came back to the land to rebuild, it was not going to be that, that they would then be torn down again. If they were being good covenant partners with God, obeying His word, God would make them flourish. God would bring up crops and abundance and overflow their vats, and they would have everything that they desperately needed. I kind of liken it to like greasing the wheels. Because Israel was, or God was for them, nothing could be against them. And I think this is very applicable to us because if you are a true Christian, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring a charge against the elect? It is God who justifies. Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Wait, what? Malachi is saying, you know, you, you, you may not really even realize what's going on here. You see the hardness of these other nations. They just can't get off the ground. But it's actually an indication of God's favor for you. You don't have these limiters. You can get ahead because your shackles have been broken. Keep covenant with your Lord and obey Him through faith, and He will cause you to flourish. You are only the one in the way of blessing. It's hard work to rebuild anything. But if God is for us, He will grease the wheels to make it happen. To rebuild in the promised land was harder. Yes, there were pagan influences. And you know there are strong pagan influences here too. We look out, it was brought to my attention this week, that the Cooperage is hosting drag queen bingo this fall. We look at that and we say, it appears impossible. How will we rebuild what has been torn down over the last 60 years? Churches certainly have not been what they ought to have been. Christians have not been who they ought to have been. 
But we ought to have every confidence that if we humble ourselves and turn from anything that's in our lives that's, that's hindering a pursuit of Him, that He will also make us to flourish. God has committed Himself to prodigals like Jacob. He has committed Himself to prodigals like us. And He is so generous. He is so generous. You think about all the people that He healed, the weak, the maimed, the demon-possessed. They weren't the beautiful people. His promises have weight. They have purpose. And they are rooted in covenant predictability. Jesus, loved ones, is coming again. That is predictable because He first came to save us. We have every right to expect the way it has been or a time period in which we've seen gospel activity occur and flourish can also happen again. Be faithful to the covenant. If you're a true Christian, respond to God's directive word and he will bless you. He will give you the happiness that you so desire. And it is because of God's loyal love that you too will also say, great is the Lord.